1: All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit CambriaInvestments.com.
0: Welcome podcast listeners. Today, we welcome a very special guest. He's the Your Money columnist for the New York Times, author of the book, The Opposite of Spoiled, which is his guide to teaching kids about money. Before writing at the Times, he wrote the Green Thumb personal finance column for the Wall Street Journal and his first book, which he co-authored about taking time off from college as a New York Times bestseller. Welcome, Robin Lieber, to the show.
1: It's great to be here. Thanks for having
0: me. I I wanna give you a little bit of a compliment. My wife, we actually just had a child, but for the last couple years, she has like dog eared your book and said, Meb, you have got to get Ron on the podcast. So so we're stoked to have you here today. A lot of we wanna talk about. So let's dive right in. Wait, wait wait, um, wait, wait,
1: wait! I got something I want to ask you. So she was one of those special students who actually read the book before she had a kid.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Well, so you got to remember, I'm, you know, I'm an investing guy. I'm a finance guy. I bring all these books home. Ninety nine percent, she has zero interest in like quantitative investing books. She saw this one and it was like, oh man, you know, this was actually really good. So, and then, then there was one other. Kind of in this kind of the, the philosophy of money and happiness genre... Was another book called Happy Money um, that we had on the podcast a few months ago. So these two were hers. So uh, kudos to you, but yeah, she 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 loved it.
1: <laughs> Excellent. When I go out and speak, my the, my favorite people to see are uh, either the people with bul- bulging bellies or or the people who actually show up with tiny newborn infants in arms. That just no, nothing warms my heart more than people who are getting started early. Well,
0: I have one question from her. We'll ask later, but otherwise we'll jump right in. So this book is it's mainly. You know, written to parents about how to discuss money with their children, given all the set of challenges we face in the modern age. Why don't we start with, with what was the motivation for writing this book? Was it the birth of your first daughter or, or was something going on in the world? Journalism? What, what, what brought you to, uh, put pen to paper here?
1: Sure. I mean, I think there are at least three things, right? There was something that happened in the moment, uh, when my daughter asked me, you know, sort of a complicated question about money at a younger age than I expected. There was something that happened that was happening at my job, um, where I was writing about things um, that were disturbing to me. But then there was also, you know, sort of a 20 a, a year stretch of time going back to, you know, my middle teen years, that I think had had an impact on me, too. So I mean, let me march through all of those. I mean, the The, the the acute question that came up um, was from my daughter, who was three at the time, who piped up one day from her car seat, just literally out of nowhere, uh, apropos of absolutely nothing. She says, "Dad, why don't, Daddy, why why don't we have a summer house?" Right? So, I, I, you know, I, I we had not been talking about buying a summer house. We weren't even sure how that phrase had entered her vocabulary exactly. Um, but it was obvious to me in that moment that. She was super confused but also had a lot figured out, right? She knew that there were people who had more stuff than we did. Maybe that meant that they had more money than we did. She knew that there were people who were making different choices than we were. And she wanted to figure out why that was. So, right? And I didn't have a great answer for her. You know, There I am, like plain Dr. Money uh, in the newspaper in front of hundreds of thousands of readers each weekend, and, and I was just stumped by this three-year-old, right? So that wasn't very good. So I, you know, take that and pair it with what I'd been doing sporadically in the newspaper for years, which was writing a lot about people who had made bad choices about how much money to borrow to go to college. Uh, and I was sort of dumbfounded at how we had arrived at a point in the United States where we present these tuition bills to teenagers who often have very little experience um, you know in money and we ask them uh, to make a decision at 17 or 18 or 19 about how much they're going to borrow right um, you know it, it, with any luck, maybe some of them have made purchase decisions about, you know, phones or bicycles for a couple hundred dollars before, but not a five or a six figure decision that involves, a, you know, tens of thousand dollars of debt. So, I mean, no wonder we ended up in a bad situation with student loan debt in the country. I mean, what, what did we expect was going to happen? And then I thought about the situation that I had been in as a teenager. And, uh, you know, my, my parents finances took a, took a turn for the worse. Uh, you know, I ended up going uh, on scholarship and, you know, Middle school and high school at the private school that I attended. And my mom sort of gave me a front row seat for the financial aid application process. And I, you know, I, I learned a lot from that experience and you know was lucky enough to have made you know reasonable choices, albeit at a time 25 years ago when the numbers were not so large. So I took all that together and I thought, wait a second we're not having the right kinds of conversations with our kids about this stuff. And I thought about it some more and, you know, realized that, you know, financial literacy was sort of a boring term that turned people off. And, and what I realized, like more than anything, was that the way to get people talking about this stuff was to remind them that every single conversation about money, uh, whether it's with your spouse, if you have one, or your friends, uh, or your kids, as you're teaching them, every single one of those conversations is also a conversation about values right saving is about modesty uh, or saving is about you know patience and perseverance and and the spending decisions that you make those are about modesty and prudence and and thrift Right. Uh, You're giving decisions. Those are about generosity and gratitude. And kind of hanging over all of that is a, a deep curiosity, at least among children and teenagers, about who they are, how they got to be, where they got to be. You know, they're searching for a sense of perspective about where their family stands. Right. All of those conversations our values conversations in addition to money conversations and every parent wants their kid to have good values. So that was kind of how it rolled its way out.
0: So, you know, we we've actually talked a lot about on the podcast about how it's a shame that, you know, they don't teach in the curriculum. At least most of the schools, you know, personal finance in high school is a required class and then you know, it's college as well. So you kind of have to rely, like you said, on, on, parents and friends. And so a lot of parents really are reluctant to talk to their children about money, um, and find it really challenging. Why is that? And, and kind of how, how do you recommend parents start that conversation, uh, despite the, the difficulties?
1: Yeah. So, you know, about the, the classroom. Learning, um, I have kind of extremely mixed feelings about that, and much depends on kind of where you're coming from. You know, the the, the research itself is mixed on on whether the you know financial literacy curriculums in the schools are effective. You know, I, I tend to think that that stuff is going to work best um, when you're teaching kids things that they can immediately put to work in their own lives. So the thing that I find baffling about those curricula is that it's very rare that anybody teaches a personal finance class in high school where the kids spend the entire semester studying the financial aid and college financing system. Now, that would be useful. Nobody does that, right? And it really can take an entire semester to figure it out because it is so complex, right? Um, And then, you know, because I think that all of these money conversations are also conversations about values, I I, I personally don't want to outsource those to, you know, some middle school or high school teacher. I want to be doing the values education for my kid. Um, But I'm also, you know, aware of the fact that many, if maybe most of Families just don't have these conversations or can't. So I'm also grateful that some schools at least are, are, are giving it a shot. Um, you know, which segs right into your question, right? So like, why doesn't this happen in the first place? Well, it, for all sorts of reasons, right? A, a lot of it comes back to shame, though. Parents are ashamed that they don't know the answers to their kids' questions, that maybe they don't have you know, a kind of a basic sense of financial literacy themselves. Or maybe they're ashamed that when their kids start asking them probing questions, the kids are going to find out pretty quickly that the parents actually, or the parent, if it's a single parent household, they don't have a firm grip on their own finances. Most Americans don't, right? Maybe you're spending recklessly, even if you make a lot of money, or maybe you're in a lot of debt and and you don't want to talk about it because it, it makes you worried and you're you're afraid that your kids will get worried. Um maybe there's shame about how you earn your money. Right? Maybe you're in an industry that people tend to criticize. Um or Maybe you're ashamed because you don't earn as much as the majority of the people or the families that you or your kids hang out with. And you don't want to have to answer questions about that. You know, there's a lot of that uh, that goes on. And I I think there's more shame than there is um, a a sort of like old fashioned feeling that money conversations are inappropriate or or impolite. I mean, there's some of that left in in some parts of, of America, but I think most of us have woken up to the fact that um, money is an incredibly powerful force in the world, whether we like it or not. And part of our job as parents is to make sure that our kids are ready to make big, important financial decisions. Without anyone really paying much attention, in the last 20 or 25 years, we've plopped one of the biggest and most impactful financial decisions that anyone will ever make, you know, where to go to college and how much to pay for it. We've plopped that into the teenage years, which is insane, right? And yet that is the way that it is. It's going to be that way for a while. And if our kids aren't ready uh, to reckon with that, if we haven't been talking to them about it for, you know, 10 years prior and kind of getting them ready to deal with those large numbers, uh, they could be in real trouble. They could make some terrible decisions, right? So I think most people who look at this, um, uh, you Know with a with a with a clear head, will realize that we don't have any choice anymore about whether to have these conversations.
0: Well, there's a very simple answer on the public and private education for middle and high school, and that's you and I just design the curriculum, and then we can just take it to all the schools and say, "This is what you should be teaching, Ron." Yeah, that's a perfect <laughs> answer. But you have, you have a couple uh, good pieces of advice to parents. You say, "Look, first of all, don't ever lie about the money stuff. Kids are too smart; they'll figure it out anyway." And praise curiosity, you know, let them know that it's okay, even great to ask questions. And for all these questions they ask, are we poor? Are we going to have to move, etc. about life and finances? One of my favorite responses you would always had, and maybe you could talk a little bit about it that gets to the heart of it, is your response is often to ask the child, why do you ask? And maybe talk about why that's a it's kind of a powerful response, because a lot of adults get defensive or, you know, they, they get taken aback by the questions. Why is that such a, a good response to a lot of the, a lot of the questions the kids come up with?
1: Sure. Well, I, I guess for starters, you know, let, let's call this what it is, which is a tactic. Right. We we know that. Even when our, when we are at our best, we will sometimes feel defensive about the questions that they are asking, right? Often they will sound challenging. Maybe they are meant to be challenging, um, and, and maybe they are – uh, they feel challenging because our, our children are pointing to some underlying logic that is actually illogical, right? So it's perfectly normal to feel that way. But it is also the case that um, sometimes, uh, even often, the questions on the face of them may, may not be what they appear to be, right? So think about the questions that involve large numbers, right, particularly a younger child. Who's asking um, how much your house is worth or how much money you make? And now think about where that's coming from, right? Why might they be asking that question? Well, uh, you know, with the younger ones, um, you know, they're hanging out on the on the playground, and you know, and the and, and the kids are throwing numbers around, right? Um, uh, you know, often the, the the numbers end with ION, right? You know, my my mom's a millionaire. Well, my dad's a billionaire, right? And so, uh, you know, it's natural for them to come home and. and want to know how many aliens you have in, in, in your family right so some of it may be coming from that they're overhearing things that make them wonder or they're overhearing things in your household that make them wonder right um maybe you're on the phone with with a creditor or or uh, a financial service company that you're having an argument with uh, or a disagreement with maybe you and your spouse if you have one are yelling at each other you know you're in a fight um that has to do with money the kids get worried right they're taking all of this stuff and and they're trying to make sense of it now um with the slightly older ones they are you know, picking stuff up in the newspaper. Um, they are uh, reading your mail. If they're like me, they're in your file cabinets and, and looking at your tax returns, which is something that I did to try and sort out what was going on, you know, with my parents' divorce and why things seem to be coming apart at the seams. It didn't help me out much, but um, I did try, right? And so, you know, if you ask why do you ask, you'll eventually get to the bottom of it, right? Well, I overheard this kid saying this or I overheard mom talking about that and I got worried or I saw this in the newspaper or I, I read this on a bill and it, and it made me wonder um, because, you know, when you get right down to it, right, uh, these questions about, you know, how much money do we have or how much do you make, what they're really trying to get to is something more fundamental, right? It's like, mom, dad, Uh, Are are we okay here? Are are, are we are we normal? Right. And 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 if we're not normal, right, if if we have more than anybody else that we know, is there something wrong with that? Right. Or or, or if we have less, you know, if the reason why you won't let me have those shoes is is because we actually can't afford them. um, is, Is that because we did something wrong? Right. So those are very different questions than how much money do you make or are we rich right and i think it's ultimately important to answer the questions that they are Truly trying to get to the bottom of the things that are unsettling to them, and and to make sure we satisfy those. And then once we do that, um, we're sort of off the hook on the you know six figure housing number or the seven figure net worth number, or whatever it is. Um, and and we can sort of save those more difficult conversations for later.
0: And I thought one of the best examples in your book, you know, money can be so abstract, e- even for professionals in our field. You start talking about these large numbers and what they mean. And I think it was, and I'll paraphrase this, but a father came home one day, his kids were asking about a lot of topics and budget. And he said, I think they looked up how much he made and he just went to the bank, right? And withdrew a month's salary and ones, took him a couple of days to get it, laid it out on the table. And after their kids' eyes were just googly-eyed, you know, actually went and took piles of the money and, and said, look, this is how much we pay for insurance, you know, and this is how much we pay for this and that. And I thought that was such a beautiful example to kind of, you know, bring it home a little bit. I don't know what he did with all the money afterwards, maybe took it the horse track, but um, I love that example. Well, let's segue a little bit. You know, we, there's a lot, so much I want to cover. You know, the, the, the title of the book, when you talk about spoiled, you know, the, the derivative used was, was, it was the, originally the word was referring to meat and there's no real antonym to spoiled. You know, I think you said the, the best was fresh and you, it w- would sound funny to go around talking about your you're really fresh kids, but you said spoiled kids tend to have four things in common. Do you remember do you remember what those four are? Could you talk just real briefly about kind of the overview of what you know what these traits are and then we can kind of get into some specifics on on how to uh, avoid that and cultivate the, the the non-spoiled nature.
1: Sure. Yeah, I mean the you know the the way I got there in the first place was that you know the the point at which I seized on this this values question, I, I tr- was trying to figure out for myself, all right, well, what 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 are what are the things that parents, I guess, worry about in the first place? Like, what are the opposite of good values? And, you know, when I started to ask people, well, you know, what's the, what's the, like, the worst word that somebody could use to describe your kid that would make you feel like you had flunked as a parent? You know, the word spoiled came up more than any other word. I tried to figure out, you know, but before I figured out what the opposite of spoiled was, I had to figure out what spoiled actually meant. Like, why is it you know, why does that make the hair rise up on people's arms? What What is it that, um, is there? Like a clinical definition of it, and it turns out that there is one. There, there's this guy um, based in Illinois. He's mostly retired now, but he used to travel around the country doing continuing education um, seminars for uh, school psychologists and other clinical psychologists. And he developed um, his own uh, kind of definition of it that had four parts that I felt like you know was the best one that I found. And the thing that's cool about it is that it has almost nothing to do with money you do not have to be rich to spoil your child it can help some but it's it's not necessary right so this is this is how he put it right like number one spoiled kids um, do not have any rules at all right Spoiled kids, number two, if there are any rules for the way in which they're supposed to, you know, behave and conduct themselves, they are generally not enforced. So, you know, there are no consequences for breaking the rules such as they exist. Um, Then the third part of the rule is that, you know, spoiled kids are also children for whom – the path in front of them is always laid smooth, right? So there are no bumps in this road. And if you fall down, if you screw up, if you break the rules, if you – fail there 's always going to be somebody there to kind of pick you up and brush you off um, so that you do not have to uh, you know suffer any consequences and it 's only in the fourth part of the definition where you start to get into you know things that involve money spoiled kids are also kids um, who express no gratitude. Um, They think that they have it coming. They have, uh, you know, an above average amount of material possessions, and they get to do an above average amount of Things. And in both those instances, they just expect that that is the way that it is. Um, They don't have any context or perspective on how lucky they are to get to have and do what they do get to have and do. And so, obviously, with that last one, you know, it's, 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 it's easier to spoil a child, you know, if you have a lot of money. But, uh, you know, I also heard from People in situations where, you know, families were divorced or the parents had lost their job and, you know, and, and often, um, parents and other family members and family friends who feel um, badly or guilty in that context will lavish whatever remaining resources there are on the kids so that the kids are somehow insulated from the, you know, stress that the family is under. So, uh, you know, even if the family is under financial constraints, it it may be that the parents uh, overcompensate by trying to do nice things for the kids. And, uh, you know, if the kids have no appreciation for that or aren't taught to appreciate it, they too can become spoiled.
0: A really interesting takeaway on that, by the way, listeners, again, is that the majority and a lot of these don't relate necessarily directly to money. So a lot of these can be cultivated regardless of whether you're a super wealthy family or not. And one of the ones you talked about, which is, which is kind of a good segue in the book is, is also a lot of spoiled kids tend to have few chores and, and kind of responsibilities there. And so I, there's, there's kind of a, tangential topic, which is both chores and allowances. And I thought it'd be fun to chat about that real quick because you give some good guidance on allowance. But what's your overall take? When do you start it? Do you do it? How much? All that good stuff.
1: Yeah, so, you know, it's absolutely the case that um, one of the primary rules uh, in a household and a family that doesn't want to raise spoiled children is that the kids have responsibilities for the maintenance and functioning of the household. And what we're talking about here are not just like self care. You know, I'm going to pay you 10 bucks a month in exchange, you're going to, you know, make your bed uh, and brush your teeth and get your homework done. No. Um, You know, the choice should have um, something. Or, or everything, even to do um, with things that the entire family needs, right? So that's you know, kitchen work of all kinds. It's it's cleaning. It's it's any any number any number of things that uh, you know impact the the functioning of the household. So the question that often comes up first is the question of whether. Kids should be compensated for doing their chores? And I, I actually think that the answer to that one is is a clear no. It, it's not how the, the majority of households function. You know, most of the survey work that's been done on this suggests that, you know, roughly three fourths of families that um, pay an allowance do so in exchange for doing the chores. I, I have just like a practical problem with that. Um, as many families have discovered, as, you know, the kids get older and smarter, um, they may say to the parents after a certain Point, um, you know, if they happen to be frugal, right? Look, I that, you know, they, they've got. Let's say they've got like months of allowance saved up. They may decide that, you know, they don't want to do the chores anymore, or they don't want to do them for a while, and. They don't need to because they have all the money that they need for a while, right? And at which point, you're you're kind of in a negotiating pickle uh, as a parent because I don't think anybody's intent is that the chores will not get done some weeks as opposed to others. But if that's the deal that you set up, well, well, you've placed yourself in a rough position. So I'd much rather parents put themselves in a… Situation where the chores are done as a matter of course. They're, they're done for free. And if you're looking for leverage or consequences to make sure that they do get done, well, you can just take away something that the kid likes to do as opposed to something that the kid likes to have, right? And, and, and that'll be your leverage, right? It's like if the, the wireless password changes, you know, one minute after the chore deadline, you can be sure that the chores are going to get done, right? So, which then raises, raises another question, right? Well, like, what's the point of allowance then? Like, you're just like handing this money out. And I guess the way I'd, I'd encourage parents to think about it is to think of allowance as a teaching tool, um, a tool for learning, right? The same way that you would books, or, or musical instruments, right? We want them to practice reading and get really good at it. We want them to practice their musical instruments um, so that um, you know, they, they get to understand the joy of, of you know, improving at that. And in the same way, we want them to get good at money. Right? We want them to learn to spend it in a way that um, brings them the most happiness. We want them to learn to save it for things that are important um, to them um, that take a while to save up for and to feel that sense of satisfaction and, and accomplishment when they've, when they've worked for something and waited. And we want them to give the money to people who need it more than they do, um, and to support causes that, that move them. Right. And that takes practice to get good at that. Um, and we want them to be good at it because we're going to shove them out, uh, at 17 or 18 or 19 to make, you know, big decisions about how much money they borrow to go to school and, and what they want to do with their lives. So, um, you know, it, it makes sense to start that earlier rather than later.
0: You know, it, and it's funny cause in the book, I think you said you can even start it in first grade and, you know, older kids will need more allowance than, than younger and, and you recommend divide, like you just briefly mentioned, dividing the allowance into three parts, spending, giving, saving. And it's funny because as you read this book, you know, that it's, it's a, certainly a lens onto raising children, but so much of this advice and some of the questions I have coming up also apply to adults. And, and so many adults kind of focus on the wrong things when it comes to money. And I think this, even if you applied part of this to, an adult it is such great advice. And so talk, can you talk just real quickly about the kind of three buckets? Um, is that something that you see? Is it equal allocation? Do you put equally in the give saving uh, spending? You know, how much leeway then do you let them use and in, in what they choose from that? Uh, what's what's kind of the thought process there?
1: Yeah, well I am glad you mentioned the adult connection because I think it's totally true, right? You know, if you you look at those three jars and I you know I put them on the cover of a book for a reason. Um, if you think about it, right? That is kind of how healthy grown-ups think of it, right? If you are a, you know, financially well-behaved middle or upper middle class or upper class um, person who, you know, who's able to uh, afford to save, that's about how you do it, right? And the ratios are roughly, I mean, we all sort of know what we're supposed to be doing, right? Uh, you know, we we put away, you know, 15% or so for retirement, we put away another, you know, maybe 5% uh, for college savings, uh, you know, or a down payment or other, you know, more medium term goals, you know, depending on which God we believe in, you know, maybe we tithe 10% or, or, you know, maybe we give away a little bit less or a little bit more, and all the rest of it kind of goes towards spending. We may not think of it, that way, um, but that is in fact what we were doing with our mental accounting, right? So, you know, the allowance and the three jars—that's just a junior version of that. Now, kids' allocations will be different. Uh, you know, I don't have any particular prescription for what makes the most sense. I think much is going to depend, particularly as your kids get towards their teenage years, about like, what you're asking them to use the allowance for, and you know, if if they're going to be responsible for their own mobile phone bills and for their own gasoline for cars and and you're going to pay for that but you want them to learn to budget it, well, maybe that becomes part of their allowance and that goes into the jars and, you know, maybe more money will go towards spending than for Saving, right? Or maybe yours is a family that's already taken the giving pledge, and you know you're going to give away 99% of your money before you die. In which case, you want allowance to be um, an exercise in generosity. In which case, maybe 75% of the money goes um, towards giving, and you want your kids to get started thinking about that um, early on. Uh, but, you know, the easiest way to do it, right, is just to to do it equally the hardest part for parents quite often is just like the logistics of getting this done and make sure uh, it happens each week. And, um, you know, if you're having to do, you know, singles and fives and tens, and then it depends on having the right amount of, you know, green cash money, which many of us don't carry around as much anymore. Um, so, you know, I would default towards like kind of what's easiest and what, you know, makes the most sense, um, when you compare it to the kind of values you're trying to teach.
0: You know, and it's, it's, as we talk about this, I have so many flashbacks from childhood. I mean, I remember my grandmother, we had this like um, those big water cooler bottles that we, we would put change in and um, as a means of kind of saving and after... Uh, you know, number of months or a year or whatever would take it to the, to the bank to get redeemed for cash. And I was always astonished about how much money it, it was because it only looked about $15 and ended up being like a hundred or $200. Now, granted grandma was probably dumping her change person there every day, but, <laughs> um, but but thinking about, you know, guidelines for the the giving and 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 saving and spending, it just reminded me of another thing. I we had a similar situation growing up where my dad was like, look, if you save this money, you can spend it on whatever you want. And when he finally got around to it, he's like, All right, Meb, what do you want to spend it on? I said, I want to buy a butterfly knife. And he's like, What are you talking about? You know, I said, Well, I can buy anything I wanted. <laughs> and so he ended up or I think he's either that and like a Chinese star. So much <laughs> much to my neighbor's chagrin, me throwing Chinese stars in the background. But are there any guidelines you have? You know, is is it um you know, is it just kind of common sense where you kind of say, Hey, we're gonna give to charities we that you really support? Or like are is there any general suggestions you have here?
1: So a, a couple of things there. Um, I, you know, you'd asked before about um, whether money can migrate from uh, one jar to the other. Um, I, you know, you can set whatever rules you want about that. And, and many parents are thrilled when, you know, something really bad happens in the world. Um, sometimes kids will want to take all of their spend money and all of their saved money and, you know, dump it in the give jar and, you know, give it all away to help the victims of, you know, whatever tragedy has occurred. I, I don't think anyone would want to get in the way of, their kids doing something like that, and you know, if your kid is not a big spender, um, you know, and wants to you know uh, transfer some of their spend money to you know the save jar because they're insistent upon getting the latest iPhone, by all means, allow them to do that if they want to deny themselves you know more everyday expenses. But then that that gets to. You know, the question that, you know, occurred to you uh, when your dad seemed to change the rules, um, which is that um, every family, uh, whether they realize it or not, has a banned item list. Right? And your dad didn't realize it until um he began to understand just exactly what it was that you had uh your eye on. And now I, I try to stay out of the business of what ought to be on the banned item list, but I mean we've definitely been been tested over the years. Um you know, my daughter is eleven now and she decided about a year and a half ago that she really wanted an ombre. Um do you guys know what an ombre is? No. Yeah, I didn't know what it was either. I think I'm saying it right. Um, it, it, it's basically, uh, you may see, you know, there's a lot of, like, teenage girls walking around right now with, like, half of their hair their normal color, and then, like, the bottom half mm-hmm. um, with some completely whacked-out color. Well, well, she wanted half of her hair. It was actually a little bit less than half. She wanted it to be purple. <laughs> and so, you know, my wife and I had to, have to talk about this, right? We definitely were not going to pay for it. Uh, you know, and we have a lot of conversations around allowance that has to do with, Like okay, the difference between a want and a need, right? And you know, we supply her with the things that she needs, and allowance her for the things that she wants. Although uh, you know, during the holidays and at her birthday, you know, we'll we'll buy her presents too, right? But as a general rule, you know, we want her paying for her wants uh, out of allowance, and so you so. We're perfectly fine with, you know, paying for haircuts, even good haircuts. But, but this is something different, right? Um, definitely a watch. But then we had to decide, well, alright, um, body modification, right? Like, where does that fit in, uh, on the banned item list? And, um, while we would, never allow her to get a tattoo, right? Permanent body modification. Um, and we've been debating for years, uh, you know, her request um, for the second ear pursing. Uh, uh, and I guess you could argue that that's not permanent because those holes can close up over time. Um, this was temporary. And we ultimately decided that um, if she was really willing to to pay for it, that that, that that was not going to go on the banned item list. But um, we made it clear to her that, you know, we didn't want her... You know, sort of screwing her hair up with some kind of, you know, Kool-Aid. Dye job, right? So she was going to need to get it done at the place where she normally gets her haircut, and because we live in New York City and stuff is expensive, that was going to cost one hundred and sixty dollars. But she was determined to do it, and, and she did, and it it, it, and it looked really cool, and you know she was super proud of herself. So, but but the, you know these things can be a close call, right? And and as it is uh, with mobile phones, right? Uh, many parents get into this way earlier than they expect to. You know the five, the six, the seven year olds, they they want. IPhones. And, you know, you hold out for a while, but eventually your kid probably needs some sort of, of mobile device, if only to keep in touch with all their other friends You have them. Now, just as a footnote here. Uh, the Gates family, as in Bill and Melinda, they, they did not allow their kids to have mobile phones until they were 14. So, you know, years after most of their friends had them. Um, so, you know, there is a, a prominent case for holding out here, but, you know, when your kid gets their first phone, uh, most of them are, are going to want an iPhone and you're going to have to decide, well, you know, is that a want or a need or is a phone that, that, that is that advanced and expensive something that belongs on the banned item list permanently? right? Like, you know, just the middle school kids and maybe even high school kids are not responsible enough uh, to own an iPhone. And, you know, that's a judgment call that you're going to have to make.
0: I remember a very traumatic part of my childhood where I, I was all about the idea of dyeing my hair and use lemon juice and ended up being this horrific orange yellow color for, <laughs> for months on end. Um, right. But I got the perfect solution for you on the tattoo. We just invested in a tattoo company that does the kind of two week Temporary tattoos that actually look pretty pretty similar to the permanent ones, so maybe, maybe that's a solution for you. All right, um, <laughs> I like the Bill Gates suggestion. I think I've often I've often heard attributed to Steve Jobs too that he used to limit screen time per day for his kids, which I think makes a lot of sense. But I want to touch on one or two things before you have to go in. You know, it's funny. So much of what we've talked about today, you know, again, a lot of it doesn't necessarily explicitly talk about money where we're talking about rules governing behavior and boundaries and chores. But, but one of the things that people I think most associate a spoiled child with is kind of materialism. And so let, let's switch the idea of a materialistic kid and, and what are the kind of influences or conditions that end up spoiling a kid there? Just kind of let you, let you run with that topic.
1: Sure. So, you know, for anybody listening out there who wants to kind of go deep on the topic of materialism and, and the damage it can do, I learned so much from reading a book called The High Price of Materialism. It's by a Knox College psychology professor named Tim Kasser. If you've never had him on or never even heard of him, he, he should basically be your next call. He's just a terrific guy and has so many smart things to say. I read every word of that book um, twice, and it turns out there's a lot. Of academic research on um, just how psychologically damaging materialism can be, right? So, um, which is not to say that it is bad um, to covet things, right? But I think it's quite another to. Be Get everything or nearly everything that you covet, and then to value those things that you have and that you get to do um, more than the human relationships in your life, right? And so that that's what we're trying to avoid. And so, you know, for families who are lucky enough to be able to get their kids everything that they need and a, a pretty good chunk, or, or maybe even all um, of what the kids want, um, you have to come up with like a sort of. Dividing line, like a a line in the sand over which you will not step right um and uh, the psychologists who have studied affluent families kind of have a word or a phrase for this it's this, what they describe as kind of like the art of of artificial deprivation or forced deprivation right where um just because you can afford uh, to do or to have something doesn't mean that it's necessarily a good idea and so trying to figure out exactly where that line is you know is is it, 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 it isn't a bright line um but one way um to give your kids, especially older ones, teenagers, some control over this is, in fact, through uh, allowance, right? And, you know, the question I always get, well, like, you know, how much is, how much is, how much is the right amount? Or, or or just like, how much is enough, right? Which is one of the greatest kind of most cosmic money questions of our time, right? And I guess the answer to that question is, is more of like a rule or a maxim than it is a dollar figure. I mean, the answer, the antidote to materialism is this, right? You always want your kids to have enough money so that they can get some of the things that they want, but not so much that they don't have to make a bunch of really hard choices, right? Trade-offs, um, because that's what we grown ups do with our money each and every day. We may not realize it when we're doing it, you know, unconsciously or subconsciously. But uh, you know, n- n- none of us can have everything, right? As Stephen Wright used to say, "Where would you put it?" <laughs> right? um, but you know, even those of us who are I- in the, you know, five percent or the two percent or the one percent, you still can't do or have everything that you want. You know, creating those constraints, giving them an opportunity to practice trade offs and to learn often the hard way by making really big mistakes that we don't bail them out of, to learn, you know, which things bring, which things that they can spend money on um, bring them the most joy. That's incredibly valuable. It's an incredibly valuable learning experience. And it, you, the point at which you, you figure out what that right amount is, you know, it becomes harder for them to, to take on materialistic tendencies because they just don't have enough to, to, you know, be in the, you know, upper third or or upper half of their peer group, right? Because of that forced deprivation. Now I I get that it takes discipline. I get that they will whine. I I get that you will sometimes feel like the bad guy, but you just have to know that it's, it's good for them and and ultimately good for you uh, to put the decisions in their
0: hands. I I love the the example you, given the book you talk about to prevent a spoiled kid yet not to be too austere you you mentioned the dewey rule where um you arrange it so your kids end up in kind of the 30th percentile so if like 10 kids are getting a car yours is like the seventh nicest out of ten and it's so funny because I remember so many friends in high school had these just old, really terrible station wagons. And I had this, um, my dad gave me his old 1983 Land Cruiser wagon. And yeah. I loved that thing more than any car I've ever had. Uh, you know, the street value was was nothing. I think I ended uh, up donated it eventually when the engine went kaput. But I also spent a lot of nights on the side of the road learning about mechanics because it broke down all the time. <laughs> but but loved that car more than anything in the world. And I think that's a great example can you can you tell us about your tooth fairy example in the book too because i thought that was such a wonderful example of not you know focusing necessarily on on the dollar amount and uh being a little more creative about ways to to think about just money in general and, and kind of material thinking
1: parents who have who are you know parents for the first time you know will Get to the point often quite unexpectedly, uh, as my wife and I did, uh, you know, when our our daughter lost her first tooth and we just had not contemplated (laughs) what our formula was for, you know, tooth fairy compensation at that point. We were sort of scrambling. I I remember posting on Facebook and just, you know, a cascade of dozens and dozens of nutty responses, you know, um, uh, some of which I I, I put in the book. And, uh, you know, the best two examples I had one one came from a a, a couple uh, here in Brooklyn who had long since decided that um, they saw no reason to Uh, reward their children monetarily for, you know, a basic biological function, which is, you know, the baby teeth coming out and the grown up teeth coming in. Um, this happened to be a a family where the parents both, um, travel outside of the U.S. for, for work pretty often. And and so they decided what they were going to do was that when the first tooth, uh, came out, they, they, uh, got their kids a book called Throw Your Tooth on the Roof, which is a book about, different traditions in different countries about um, what they do in those cultures when kids lose their first teeth. And and, and quite often, they have nothing to do with money. It's it's only we Americans who um, have decided that uh, that's, that's a good thing to do. But then they when the kids lost subsequent teeth, um, they would put coins from different countries under their pillow. Um and so, you know, the next morning there would inevitably be conversations about, oh, you know, what did you see in that country? You know, how much would this coin be worth there? What's the coolest thing you could buy there to, you know, eat or to drink or to do um for this amount of money? Uh, you know, and it, it kind of Expanded their imaginations and you know got them thinking about where they would like to go someday and so, you know I thought that was useful. Uh, and then there were a couple of educators out uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area um, who did the following: every time their daughters would lose a tooth, they would put. they would replace that tooth overnight with a different tooth that came from an unnamed animal. And each time it would be a different animal. um, And the kids would wake up um, to a a letter that had been written backwards in disappearing ink that they could like make appear and then hold up to a mirror. And the letter contained clues about the animal that uh, the tooth had come from. Um, And they would order these teeth on the internet through some crazy store in New York city. And I I can already hear people kind of sign with exhaustion, uh, right? It's like, how could I really pull something like that together? So you don't have to do something that elaborate. But really, the moral of that story is that, you know, there's almost always a a creative solution that will make um, your kid feel special. We're dealing with that right now. Actually, our daughter's going to be bat Mitzvah in a year. Um, You know, trying to throw a party for 200 people in New York City is crazy expensive. It's not at all clear how we're going to pay for it all. But, you know, our daughter's already kind of clued into the fact that, this is going to, you know, probably cost a fair bit of money, that it's not going to be easy to pull off. Um, and she, you know, herself has already sort of got her head down thinking about creative solutions, right? You know, instead of, uh, you know, buying dessert, she wants to do, um, you know, what's essentially a sort of a, um, uh, a potluck, right, where all of her closest friends and family members, like, bake their favorite cookies and brownies, right? And, you know, a spread of three or 4,000 cookies and brownies is... Is going to be so much more awesome than you know some random cake that a caterer would make, um, and would also be free, right? Um, so you know we feel like we've already got her thinking in that way, and so you know the, there are solutions like that for birthday parties. There are solutions like that for vacations. There are you know there are all sorts of solutions like that, and kids can help come up with them.
0: I went to a bar mitzvah here in Los Angeles about a year or two ago. That's probably the, the best party I've been to in you know many years. That <laughs> versus someone like the top clubs and around the world I, I am never seen anything quite like it and uh, anyway yeah it's 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 kind of bananas you you actually bring up a good point a little bit talking about you know materialism and things you know versus um, what you call in the book the fun ratio where you know so many people think about materialistic objects cars houses, uh, you know jewelry whatever it may be things they want but in reality it's it's often the experiences that make us much happier and long-lasting memories and looking forward to it and all those sort of things tell us a little bit about the uh, the fun ratio and, and how that's a good gauge to think about you know kids and, and thinking about things things to spend money on
1: sure this came from a family in Ohio and uh, you know the 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 mother had had come up with it both as a sort of math exercise but also as a way to get kids thinking about how they wanted to use their their save money and their spend money. And she just asked them to think about like, what are the hours of fun that you are going to get out of, you know, this thing that you want to buy? You know, it's one thing if it's like dozens or hundreds of hours of fun, you know, per dollar spent, which is, you know, often the case with like a deck of cards. But, you know, for some, uh, you know, random toy or, uh, you know, it's like a, you think about the things that, that show up on, on – the radar, uh, you know, there are different ones each year. But just, you know, think about the the hoverboards of yesteryear of 17 months ago, or whenever that was, right? Um, You know, I think a lot of kids use those for hours, um, but not dozens of hours. And then they broke, or then they hurt hurt themselves, or then they burst into flame, um, or all the warnings came out about the, you know, the flammability of the batteries. And I I think the hours of fun per dollar spent on those, I I think the fun ratio on that was like really poor. And um, so, you know, it can be hard to kind of compare that to the hours of fun that you get by spending money on an experience, right? Because the memories of those are, are often long lasting in different ways. But I think it's important to, you know, encourage kids to, you know, th- think about these things as, as an investment in, in good times and, and good memories and, and not just being about um, what will happen to you in the moment.
0: We gave one of my friends in North Carolina a child for his birthday a wet banana or slip and slide, which is like a, the, one of the oldest school oh. gifts. It only costs about 10 bucks, but it said it had been their uh-huh. favorite gift of the summer in, 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 uh, in humid, hot North Carolina. so um, But that, that's a good example of remembering back to at, uh, childhood. Um, I have a question that, that you didn't really talk about. Well, you talked briefly about in the book, but I, I kind of am curious about you talk about an exchange between Jon Stewart and Chris Rock where they're talking about their kids and how much better they they've had it than they did and at one point Chris Rock's like I don't I don't even recognize these children he's like I want to send my children to camp kickass in Harlem and and you know get to see you know to to let them experience hardship and it actually reminds me of there's this great speech that uh judge uh, Supreme Court Robert's did at a uh, graduation ceremony. I mean, it's actually a ninth grade graduation ceremony, which is also a little crazy. But I'm going to read, a, I'm going to read like two lines from it. And then we can kind of talk about this because I don't, I don't know that I have a great answer to this. But um, Robert says, now the commencement speakers will typically also wish you good luck and extend good wishes to you. I will not do that. And I'll tell you why from time to time in the years to come. I hope you'll be treated unfairly so that you'll come to know the value of justice. I hope that you will suffer betrayal. Uh, because that will teach you the importance of loyalty. Sorry to say, but I, I hope you'll be lonely from time to time so you don't take friends for granted. I wish you bad luck, again, from time to time, so you'll be conscious of the role of chance <laughs> in life. And it goes on. It's a really beautiful paragraph. And one of the things I was trying to think about is kind of how do you cultivate... So many of these podcasts that I listen to and we talk about and you, they'll often ask guests, you know, what would you do differently? And they'll say, I wouldn't do anything differently because it was the hardships that really made me who I am. And so from so many children of privilege that kind of, you know, grow up in a, in a wealthy country and in many cases, the top wealth of that country, how do you cultivate that, those experiences to, to develop a child that Kind of has that hunger and that drive. Is that is this something you think about, or is it? Do you have any good insights there? Thoughts?
1: I, I do, and uh, I mean, here's here's one way to think about it. I, I you know, I, I mean, I talked about this in the book as a, sometimes like a you know sort of like deliberate down. Um, grading of, of, you know, lifestyle or, or circumstance. And I get that it's, you know, just not reasonable to expect that, that parents will do that, you know, when it comes to their kids, like education, say. But it it is quite often possible, say, in the summer to, help your kids uh, live in a way that's maybe different than the way they might have been accustomed to um, during the school year. So, you know, I I spent a lot of time um, thinking about um, summer camps and, and actually visiting them because I, I just had this hunch that um, the sleep camps that were a little bit kind of lower to the ground had a lot to teach uh, us um, about uh, about life and, and about putting things in perspective. And probably the favorite one um, I visited was a place called Pine Island, which was in the, the a little island in the middle of a lake in the middle of the state of Maine. And there's, you know, barely any electricity or running water. On on Pine Island, and you know the boys all um, you know bathe uh, naked uh, in the lake with biodegradable soap. They sleep in tents. Uh, the bathroom there is like an elevated perch. I hesitate to even call it an outhouse, but you know the boys kind of sit up there, you know, in a. Bathroom with no partitions. It's the the largest biodegradable kind of um, collective toilet I've I've ever seen. And uh, you know when I sat down with the camp director to ask him w- what exactly it was that he was trying to figure out uh, there, trying to accomplish, he said, well, he said think about it this way. He said, you know, a bunch of my kids here, you know, come every year from New Canaan, Connecticut, right? So, you know, if you don't know what New Canaan is, you know, it's a stand-in for Palo Alto or Scarsdale or Beverly Hills or Highland Park, Illinois, or, you know, name your favorite upper middle class suburb, right? And he said, the problem with New Canaan is nobody needs you in New Canaan. Um, But he said, here uh, on the island, he said, you know, there's only 90 of us. We've, you know, got No electricity, not much running water. You know, the happiness that we create, the joy that we share, the fun that we have is generated by the boys who are here. And for that, every single person is needed. Right. And if you go to a camp like that, if you can somehow have that kind of experience, I think you come to the conclusion that, you know, all the stuff that you may be lucky enough to be surrounded with during the school year, whether it's, you know, a a nice home that you're lucky enough to live in or, or a, you know, school or school system that, you know, has above average amounts of resources. All that stuff is great. Um, but it may not be. Necessary, right? What's actually necessary is, you know, the, those things that the Justice Roberts were talking about. It's loyalty and 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 friendship and, and kindness and teamwork and togetherness, right? And uh, sometimes the best way uh, to learn about those um, is in an environment that's stripped of the creature com- comforts that you might have become accustomed to. So, you know, that's the value of a great sleepaway camp. Now, now the irony there is that that experience costs ten thousand dollars a summer. <laughs> the same way that the robotics camp does. But at Pine Island and many other camps do have, um, uh, you know, scholarship programs and, you know, it's possible to get financial aid. You know, the Y camps um, that are out there uh, are often much less expensive but can teach many of the same lessons. And so, you know, there's a value to being away from home in a different environment, doing different kinds of things.
0: That makes me very nostalgic. Like, I want to go to camp right now. That sound, uh, that's how I want to go sailing, go hang out, and go sleep in the woods. Y- and you also, like, you also mentioned that it's, it's totally reasonable, um, for, for kids to, to work when they're young. Do you have any parameters on, you know, on getting a job? You know, I I probably transitioned from chores to having, you know, more responsibilities, any just broad 10,000 foot view on, on kind of working in general for, for kids.
1: Oh, sure. I mean, just because we're not going to pay our kids for their regular chores does not mean that they should not learn what it's like to earn a wage and, and work for somebody else, you know, preferably someone who isn't a, a blood relative, somebody who will, you know, kick their ass around a little bit and, and, and fire them if they don't do what they're supposed to do. That, that, those are good lessons to learn. You know, the academic research on this suggests that, you know, as long as kids are not doing it for more than 10 or 15 hours a week, their grades tend not to suffer. Some kids will want to do it much more than that. You know, the entrepreneurial and at which point parents wonder well gosh um, this might be getting in the way of their extracurricular activities even if it's not getting in the way of their grades and you know you shouldn't let it get in the way of their schoolwork obviously but parents worry about substituting, entrepreneurial activity for some other extracurricular activity that might be quote unquote worth more when it comes time to apply for colleges, I would encourage people not um, to worry about that. Colleges are looking for kids with, you know, commitment and passion um, and who are doing things that are um, unique, things that they can talk about intelligently that will make them um, interesting peers in the dorm room or in the classroom. Um, You know, I heard so much of this when I was reporting the opposite of spoiled that I actually went and talked to a bunch of uh, college admissions officers about this. And, and the basic response was this, you know, we are so sick of these overprogrammed kids who all look the same. And if there are kids who are out there who have worked for money, um, and have done interesting things, um, that's actually going to make them stand out, not, not the opposite, right? So by all means, if your, your kids want to work, um, let them work. And I would say make them work, uh, at least one summer so that they get a sense of, you know, what that is actually like.
0: I think that's a great rule of thumb that, that we used, which was my niece was working during college and then found out to the point where she was also selling blood plasma. We said, okay, you're, you're a little strapped. You may, you may need a little more help, uh, to the point when you're doing that. But uh, look, I have four pages more of questions. So we may have to invite you back on my son's first birthday to talk a little more about this. Ron. So by the way, uh, listeners, we're going to, we're going to add a lot of these links to the show notes. Um, Ron's got some great. Uh, book suggestions for young adults, including even a, in a subscription for kids' books that talk about money at thepicturebookclub.com. So we'll, we'll add show links to all these. Ron, if people want to find, um, in addition to your fantastic book, The Opposite of Spoiled, where where can people follow you, your writings, your tweets, uh, and keep up with uh, all you're up to?
1: Sure, I, I'm on Twitter um, at Ron Lieber, um, and for people who want to follow along on, you know, the kids and money and parenting and values conversation, uh, the best place to do that on is on my Facebook page. It's uh, Facebook.com/slash Ron Lieber author. Uh, if you just click the like button there, um, you'll be all set. At least a couple times a week, I'm in there, you know, posting whatever the most interesting thing is that I found in that moment, and you know, leading discussions about it. So I uh, would love to have more people along for the ride
0: awesome um again thanks so much ron listeners thanks for taking the time to listen today we always welcome feedback and questions for the mailbag at feedback at the mebfaber show.com as a reminder you can always find the show notes other episodes at mebfaber.com forward slash podcasts. subscribe the show on itunes and if you're enjoying the podcast please leave a review thanks for listening friends and good investing